0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for for helping us um, in the previous theology days that we've done, theology Tuesdays that we've done. um, And we know we couldn't have achieved what we achieved without your help. And we need that your help right now. Holy Spirit, we need you because you are not only the author of the word, you are the one who illuminates the word to our minds and to our hearts. And so we ask you to do that which only you can do. I pray, Lord, that though we are teaching and passing on knowledge and information, we pray, Lord, that somebody here today, a lot of people here who listen to this, will have their hearts transformed, will have their hearts warmed, will have um, um, uh, their hearts captivated by truth. Lord, I ask all this through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, now... um, if you are joining us for the first time, can I especially welcome you. We're so glad that you're here. I don't know how you found out about this, but we are so happy that you're doing this. This is an initiative of City Church. I'm lead pastor of City Church. My name is Femi Oshunui. And so what we're just trying to do is to put out good content there about the teaching of the word so that we can continue, whether we are Christians, we can go deeper in the faith. If you are not a Christian, it can make you understand more about what the Christian faith is. And hopefully we would love to you to, to walk that same journey um, uh, with us on becoming a Christian, and so, but I do want to inform us that we do meet every. We meet online every Sunday. So if you're not, if you don't have a church that is meeting online, please join us Sundays at nine o'clock. We start praying from nine uh, to about nine twenty-five, and then we do our, uh, we get into our service from there. So please join us every Sunday. It's still using the same platforms, and also please do me one favor. This is really important for us. Can you either? There are live chats here so you can comment and you can say whatever you want. But if you have not started following us on on, on, uh, YouTube, please subscribe to our channel. It helps you to stay notified and it gives us a boost as well. Follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. um, All of those things, they matter to us. So please take time to do that and engage with any of the content that you see there. Alright, so let us start um, with this this, uh, 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 topic. We've called it What is This Gospel? There's a guy called Paul. He writes a lot of, um, of the books in the New Testament. He wrote a lot of the books, the most number of books in the New Testament. And Paul, in two of his letters, um, something strange happens. He seems to be presenting you with the same situation, except that on one, the one in Philippians chapter 1, he ends saying that, I rejoice. On the other one, the one in Galatians chapter 1, he ends up saying, let certain people be cursed. The two situations seem similar, but he ends up drastically different with both of them. Now look at it in Philippians one 15 to 15-18. He says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill to people. The latter do so out of love, that is, they preach Christ out of love, knowing that I am put here, in of, uh, I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition. He goes on further to verse 18 to say, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Okay, now, he's talking about something about the gospel, Christ being preached, and then you go to Galatians 1, 6 to 8. I'm astonished that you are so quickly turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. What is the difference here? Because there's true things and there are different things. Paul is not confused. Paul is not contradicting himself. You see, Paul is saying that I'd rather have someone with false motives but preaches the genuine gospel. I'd rather have someone with false motives that preaches the genuine gospel than have someone with genuine motives and preaches a false gospel, a different gospel. You see, in Philippians, he says there are some people that are preaching the gospel out of goodwill and some are preaching it out of bad motives, selfish ambitions. But they are preaching the gospel. Whereas in Galatians, he's saying, even if an angel should come, an angel that is as pure, or even me, Paul, who actually first preached the gospel, I come and preach another gospel, let either of us be. Accursed. I don't want to get down into much of what that that is saying, but there's something I want to draw out of that. In Paul saying this here, he must assume that there is a there is a gospel, there is the gospel, that there is the gospel, and there are things that aren't the gospel. So that's why I talked about different gospel, which is no gospel at all. And then you can see even somebody who has wrong motives can preach the true message. If he's saying that, it means that there is a distinction between the gospel and what isn't the gospel. And the way he concludes, it shows you how important Paul thinks this thing is when that gospel is being tampered with because nobody can truly believe on a false gospel. So even if somebody out of selfish ambition preaches a true gospel to the hearer, it is beneficial. It is more beneficial to the hearer than if the hearer is hearing a nice person, a good person, someone with a nice heart, preaching a false gospel. I say that because there is, as he says in Galatians, much confusion about the gospel today. What really is it? We have gospel artists, but they don't necessarily sing the gospel, right? Gospel musicians, right? Their art isn't necessarily the gospel. And there's gospel, this gospel, that kingdom gospel, different gospels. So what really is the gospel? And that is what this teaching series is all about. It's going to look at the Gospel, and we're going to take it over a number of weeks. And so I really would love for you to be able to join us in all the different, teaching, uh, all the different uh, teachings that we're going to go. I think it would be very beneficial. So let's start with today's own. Let's start with today's own. Now, what I have to say about the Gospel, first of all, just the technicality of the word. Not even giving a specific definition. Gospel means good news. It means, gospel, the gospel is news. That's the first thing. News, it's news. Now, I'm not even talking about the kind of news. I'm just saying, at uh, a literary standpoint, it is news. News is like a statement. Now, here's the thing about statements. If I make a particular statement, a proposition, if I just say something, now, make a statement like this. Dinomelai is part of the PDP. Now, to some people, it's like, Okay, so why is that newsworthy? Why is it newsworthy? It's a statement, it's news, but why is it newsworthy? That is, why should it even be proclaimed? Why should it even come? Are, because there are so many things that are happening, but we only publish, proclaim that which is newsworthy. Now, the way you will see that that statement is newsworthy depends on the story. And the story isn't the news, but the story is what makes the news meaningful. What do I mean? For instance, I said Dino Malai is part of the PDP. The reason that is worthy, let me tell you a bit of a story. Dino Melai was not always in the PDP. In fact, Dino Malai was in the APC, the PDP's main rival. You see, that is the story, the story behind that news. So that when that news is then, when you, um, the event happens, because you know the story, all of a sudden, the news becomes more meaningful And becomes newsworthy, and so statements that are newsworthy need to have stories. We need to see the story behind them, and you see the gospel itself, which is news, has a story. The gospel has a subject. Now, in the statement Dinomelai is part of PDP, the main subject of that statement is Dinomelai. Who is the subject of? the gospel or well, the subject of the gospel we find in Romans chapter 1 when Paul is telling us that he is an apostle set apart for the gospel he says that in verse 1 I am set apart for the gospel of God what gospel of God the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son the gospel is about the son of God what does son of God mean all of those things you can only fully know when you read the story. But the story, it's indicated that there is a story here. Why? Because it says this gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. By this he was talking about the, what we call the Old Testament. Now, 39 books of uh, the Bible, the first half of the Bible, 39 books of it. He's saying there was a story. There was a story um, uh, which is the context so through which this gospel emerges. Now, what happens is at that time, they didn't have what we call the New Testament now, which is 27 books. So when Paul is saying it was, profi- it was promised beforehand, he's telling you that is their backstory. History, if you like. But we now have a New Testament, and that forms the concluding part of the story, so we have hope. The aspects of the story that have been done, and the aspects of the story that have not yet been done. But the subject of the story remains Jesus Christ. He himself says that in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. He says, He told some people, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Those are the three big divisions of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is saying that is the story that leads to the newsworthiness of the things I have done. What is the gospel about? It is about the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done. If you try to talk about the gospel without Jesus Christ, you don't have the gospel. You can have other kinds of good news. You can talk about the economy. You can talk about leadership. You can talk about many good things. There are many good things we can talk about in this world, but that doesn't make them the gospel. And the gospel is the most central message of the entire Bible. That is what Jesus Christ was saying. Everything speaks about me. Don't forget, in Romans, Paul said, the gospel that has its primary subject as the Son of God. And so today, I want us, before we define what the gospel is, I want us to look at that story. That's primarily what we're looking at today. The gospel story. Remember, the story, the gospel story is not the gospel. The gospel is a statement, right? it's news, but the meaning of that or the depth of that gospel can only be appreciated. And even, in fact, the, the gospels, um, the, 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 the statement itself can only be traced out as we look at the story. And that's what makes it even much more newsworthy for us to proclaim. So I do look at the gospel story, but before we look at the gospel story, examine the structure of most stories. The structure of most stories goes really in four parts, right? Not all, but most stories. And there's been studies done on this. And the four parts are this. What you call home, tension, resolution, and home again. Home, a certain beginning with everything seeming calm. Tension, where things now start, you know, it's, something has disrupted what was at the steady state in the beginning resolution to bring a, a, an end to the tension and then finally home again something that is very similar to what was there at the beginning we see that in every in, in movies in advertisements advertisements really you know you start off with a family that is at home and then all of a sudden we see an antagonist a mosquito that is on top of the child, and then you see so that, that's where that, so the story uh, the, the family at home, eating breakfast or eating lunch that's home. And then the mosquito comes, is on one of the children, that, and then the child gets sick, we see them in the hospital bed, that is what um, tension. And then the product, anti malaria medicine, that is resolution. And then what's home again? The person has been fully restored back to the family. Do you understand that? It's what we see also in Hollywood movies. Hmm? This guy meets this girl. He really loves her in university. But then, uh, he wants to marry her, but then his mother, the antagonist, the mother then has another plan. There's this other girl, the mother is probably Patience Ozoko, maybe something like that, right? She's the antagonist. And so she does everything with her charms and whatever to try to get rid of that girl that he loves. All of a sudden the boy is somewhat bewitched. He starts liking Patience Ozoko's girl. But then, as the tension has now come in, the other girl is somewhere at the back. She's crying. You know how they, they play this, this sad, evil music. One way or the other, Sha, maybe she meets a pastor or something. The guy is no longer bewitched. The mother, is, uh, she's exposed to being a witch. He finds that girl again. And eventually, they are together. But not just together. They are now married home again. Home, tension, resolution, and then home again. Well, the gospel story also takes that form. It goes in four parts. Creation, home. Fall, tension. Redemption, resolution. And then new creation. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Now, I should say something about that redemption part. We're going to add two things there, like a pre-resolution, and a post-resolution. It's still part of redemption, but we're just adding it there because they form important part. So, in that redemption, we're going to have Israel, redemption, and then church. Israel redemption church. It's still part of the, the third one. So, if you like, it is creation, fall, then in the bracket of redemption, you have um, uh, Israel, redemption itself, the church, and then, finally, the fourth part is new creation. I hope we're getting that. Okay, so, This thing is told, this story is told through the history books of the Bible. So in the Old Testament, that is from Genesis all the way to um, uh, Esther. And then in the New Testament, it is Matthew to the book of Acts and some parts of Revelation. And we're going to rush through. There are lots of scriptures, as usual, that we're going to rush through because this is a teaching. We're going to rush through that story, um, and I'll try and summarize it as best as I can with some of those stories. So let's go to Act 1, Creation. What do we find at the beginning? So if we turn to... The book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, tells you who our protagonist is, the main character of this story, in the beginning, God. And what do we see about God? He created the heavens and the earth. So we now see that there is a creator God who existed before the beginning, so he's existent In the beginning, he created matter, time, space, which means that he transcends matter, time, and space. He's not bound by it, though he created it. And though he created many different things, animate and inanimate creatures, uh, sorry, inanimate and animate creatures, all of a sudden the history zooms in to the apex of his animate creatures. So he created animals. Those are animate creatures. He created inanimate things like the the stars, the moon, the trees, and the plants, and the the seas, and all of those things. But they were animate creatures. Fish. um, Fish you know, um, 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 cows and all of those things, but then uh, the apex of that creation was humanity. All right. Oh, okay. Um, I'm hearing that the sound was lost for the structure. Is that it? Uh, Well, if that's the case, all I just said was that, um, that, I'm sorry for repeating myself, uh, but for any story, for any story, that what you have is a four-part, which is home tension, uh, sorry home tension resolution and home again. Home tension resolution and home again. And whereas with the Bible story, it also follows that it is creation, fall, redemption and new creation. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And we said that that redemption, the third part, will expand it a little bit. It's still the third part. To have just before the redemption, you have israel and just after redemption you have the church but that forms the block of the redemption part so that it is creation fall bracket redemption which then has israel redemption and then the church bracket closes for redemption and then you have new creation okay so now we're introduced to, in the first act which is creation we introduced to the creator god who creates inanimate things but animate things and then the 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 history, all of a sudden, the focus goes to this special creation called human beings, who he creates in his image. See verse 27. So God created mankind, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Not only is just humanity generic, but humanity is diverse, male and female, he created them. Now, this God is also a benevolent God. The Creator God is a benevolent God. Why? Because these people that He created, He blessed. He blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Notice, He says rule. In other words, they are given almost a a, 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 a regent, um, a, a kingly rule over the other creation. And you then think, oh, he created them to be kings. Are they kings of themselves? No, because when he, put the, he created a garden um, where he met with them, um, uh, called the Garden of Eden, and here's what he said, and the Lord God commanded. So God who is giving them dominion over the creation can command them. He is not just a benevolent God. He is their king, and he is a lawgiver. He gave them the law. He commanded them, and he says, "You are free to eat from, the tree in, from every tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do so, if you do so, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die." In other words, he is king, he is lawgiver, but he is also judge. If they disobey, and so that's what we find. This is home. This is the beginning. This is creation. A good God, Creator God who blesses, but also is, he he, he created humanity, gave them dominion over the earth, created in his image, but then he warns, he's their ruler. So he told them to rule, he is their ruler, and he's their lawgiver, and he's also their judge if they disobey. And so that is how it starts, Genesis 1 and 2. By the time we get to Genesis 3, we get to the second act, which is fall. What happens? We are now introduced to our antagonist. There's there's a protagonist, God, but there's also the antagonist, the one that creates tension, the troublemaker, the homebreaker. You know, all of these things, the antagonist comes. And what does it say in Genesis 3, verse 1 and 4? Now the serpent, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And by verse 4, he told that directly, you will not certainly die if you eat out of that tree. In other words, he is a deceiver because if he is not the creator, the creator is the good God. He is the one that understands that he's the embodiment of truth. There is no truth without the creator God. What is truth? Truth is God's perception of reality. right? Truth is whatever accords with reality. But there is one who existed before the reality you and I can perceive. So he can see everything. So to oppose him is to go against truth. And so this antagonist, therefore, is the embodiment of evil. Because he opposes the main protagonist and the embodiment of truth and what is good. That is, And what did he do? He deceived humanity. And actually, they eventually disobeyed God. They eventually disobeyed God. And when they did, at, at the, uh, Eve ate and she gave it to her husband, and he ate, and so eventually God confronts them, the husband is Adam, Eve is the wife, God confronts them, and then God says, remember, I blessed you, but now actually this blessing is going to turn into a curse, and so he starts with the serpent, he goes to the woman, and now he's talking to the man, Adam, and he says, because you listen to your wife, he's not saying men should not listen to their wives, he's saying because you listen to your wife over me, alright, men, okay, And so he's saying, I'm making true of my promise. I'm judging you. Eventually, he even banishes them from the garden. They move from a place of the garden to a place of the wilderness. The garden where everything was cool, everything was flourishing. All of a sudden, God is saying, the way you work, you will still work. You will still have things produced. But now the ground is cursed. That was, That is, this sin, this thing that they had done, this rebellion that they had against the one who created them, was going to have effects environmentally. But that was because there was already a spiritual disconnect. Once they listened to the serpent, once they saw that, that tree, the fruit of that tree was something that they should have eaten from, and not believed God, there was a spiritual disconnect. In fact, in the curse of the woman, you could see that there was going to be a social disconnect. And all of these things, you could see that there's a psychological disconnect. So what you see is the spiritual disconnect leads to a psychological disconnect, a social disconnect, and an environmental disconnect. Why ultimately, in the big picture of what the Bible presents, is not all in the specifics, but ultimately in the big picture, why is it that we have people um, suffering from illnesses? Why do people struggle with mental illnesses? Why do people struggle with physical illnesses? Why do people, why, why do husbands and wives fight? Why do nations fight against themselves? Why are there natural disasters? Why is there a climate change and environmental pollution? Why are all of these things, why do those things, these things ex, uh, exist that mess up our world? It all has its root here. And we have repeated what Adam and Eve have done. It is in the fall. It's in the fall. And so this God judges them. But one thing is funny, when he judges the serpent, what he then does is he brings a promise, a veiled promise of salvation. There's a judgment there, but there's a veiled promise of salvation. In 3 verse 15, notice what he says. I will put enmity, he's talking to the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He promises that eventually this op- this embodiment of evil, this antagonist, this one that opposes him, this one that has brought destruction into the world and continues to bring destruction into the world, that this one will eventually be destroyed by a serpent crusher. The serpent crusher. In other words, I will bring redemption through This victory that will come by the serpent crusher. Who is this serpent crusher? Well, you see, the unfolding of the book starts to lead us there. And so now we get into our third part. But remember I said the third part has, it starts with the pre-resolution. We get to the resolution part. Now, I don't know uh, if you like to watch movies. I used to like watching movies a long time before. I just never get the time to do that now. I prefer watching a number of series, you know, just binge watch them at some point. But one of the things about movies is, you know, you always have to identify the actor, you know, actor, actor. And actor is both male and female. But you know what I mean by actor, right? Who is the main person, main protagonist? But if you notice also, especially when you look at the Academy Awards, for instance, there's also the category of supporting actor. And some of the greatest uh, people that we know have won that role. For instance, I don't think Morgan Freeman has ever won the best actor role, but he has won the best supporting actor. The same thing with Michael Caine as well. And so it is a wonderful thing to be a good supporting actor. Now, the protagonist in the story of the Gospel actually has some nice supporting actors. And there are three of them I want to highlight today as we look at the first part of the the pre-resolution part, the part of Israel. There are three people I want to itemize and I would mention those three people also because God does something with them. He enters an agreement with them. He enters what you call a covenant, either with them or through them. All right? Three of them, Abraham, Moses, and David. Abraham, Moses, and David. Why are they significant? Well, let's keep going. Now, as... Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. They have a child, and uh, his name is Cain. They have another child, his name is Abel. Cain kills Abel. Cain kills Abel. So Cain was the seed of, or the offspring of the serpent. He was opposing the offspring of the woman. But God gave them Seth, which was another offspring instead of Abel. That's Genesis chapter 4. And as time went on, though, even among Cain's descendants and the people in the world, that sin continued to multiply. People started doing terrible things, so much so that in Genesis chapter 6, God said, It's like I regretted creating humankind because the heart of man is so desperate to do evil. And so you had uh, the time of Noah, where God only saved Noah and um, his seven family members. You fast forward then you still see sin multiplied more and more and more throughout the earth, even after Noah has his children. And it then leads to this situation where sin sin and rebellion is systematized, if you like, in a religious system at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Eventually, that rebellion is judged by God, because he's also judged, and that leads to their confusion when they have different languages. So now they are different people. So you see, the people are now different nations, as a result of the judgment of God. And this is what we see in Genesis chapter 11. The nations are dispersed. We even have their list in Genesis chapter 10. The nations are dispersed and they have become diverse by reason of judgment. Different nations, diverse, because God has judged. And that's where we get to Genesis chapter 12 and we meet Abraham. Now we're going to read Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 17. God meets this guy called Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 17, he makes a covenant with him. But you see, the covenant is related to what God tells him or promises him in Genesis chapter 12. The covenant that he does in Genesis 17 is related to the promises that God has made to him in Genesis chapter 12. And you see that that promise is related to what has happened in Genesis 11. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, it says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, underlying nation. And I will bless you. Remember, He is the benevolent God. Even though He has been judging, He continues to bless. I will bless you. I will make your name great, Abraham, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth, in other translations, you'll say all the families of the earth, all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. That is so important. God has just judged the nations of the earth. That is how they became the nations. So they are under the curse. They are under the curse. So God then chooses Abraham, offspring of the woman lineage. He chooses Abraham and says, Through you, I promise, the blessing that I'm giving to you, it is so that you will eventually be a blessing. And through you, the families of the earth, the nations of the earth, the peoples of the earth now under the curse because of sin will be blessed what does that mean is it that through abraham he's going to bring economic blessing throughout the whole earth is that what this really means so that if you have abraham's blessing that means you will be wealthy i don't think so we need to follow the story now remember that's the promise now go to chapter 17 verse 4 we're going to read 4 to 7. god now establishes a covenant with abraham and now in 15, in chapter 15, God has met Abraham and he reiterated the promise where Abraham is like, how can I how is this thing even going to happen when I don't even have a child of my own? A child from my own wife. And God said, Don't worry, that will happen. That will happen. Even though you and your wife are nearing you are nearing hundred, she's nearing ninety, I promise you it will happen. So in Genesis 17, it then says, As for me, this is my covenant. That's an agreement, a formal agreement, but it's also an intimate agreement. not just a mere transaction like mere legal papers it's more intimate than that but it's more binding than just an affectionate relationship that we have i will enter my covenant is with you and you will be the father of many nations that is that same promise reiterated but now he's putting a covenant to it no longer will you be called abraham but you will be called abraham for i have made you a father of many nations i will make you fruitful All of a sudden, Abraham is like a new Adam, Adam, a new humanity. I will make you fruitful. Remember, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. I will make you fruitful. He's taking Abraham out of all the sinful people of the world. I will make you fruitful. I will make you nations of you and kings will come out of you. So are you noticing God is, okay, and let me finish. And I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and your descendants after you for generations to come, to be your God and to be God of your descendants. So what is God promising in Abraham? An offspring, descendants. God is also blessing him too. right? So God blessing him. God is promising an offspring. God is also saying that He's going to have a family, if you have any descendants. But God is also saying that, look, nation, a nation is going to come out of you, and yet nations will come out of you. And then finally God is saying kings will come out of him. This is really crucial because this is the mechanism through which God is now going to use Abraham, Abraham's line to bless the nations of the world that are under his judgment. Very important. So God establishes Abraham, a covenant with Abraham. So how does this thing start to then progress? This is still all in the book of Genesis. After that, God eventually gives Abraham a miraculous child called Isaac. Isaac has twins through his wife, Rebecca, one of them, so Isaac is still this uh, within this line of the woman, the offspring of the woman. But then of the twins is not Esau the first, but it is Jacob. Jacob, who then has an encounter with God, and he also changes his name. He's is called Israel, and Israel has twelve sons. So you see, Abraham is the chosen patriarch, and now he has a family of his grand, of his, his, his twelve sons of his uh, twelve great-grandsons. And at the end of the book of Genesis. What has happened is that one of those sons is sold into slavery in Egypt. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt. His name is Joseph. And then through Joseph, God blesses all the nations of the earth when they were under famine. And Joseph then calls all his people into Egypt, 70 of them. And that's really the book of Genesis. So you move from the chosen patriarch, Abraham, to a chosen family at the end of Genesis, 70 of them. And now they are in Egypt. Now when you get to the book of Exodus, Remember God's promise to Abraham: Let them multiply. And at first, that just looks like it's just done in a physical way. They multiply, multiply, multiply for over 400 years in Egypt, and they become numerous. But so much so that they become it's like a threat to the king of Egypt, the current king of Egypt. After 400 years, he doesn't like them, so he puts them under slavery. And God eventually sends them a deliverer, raised in Pharaoh's palace, spent 40 years there, then 40 years outside in um, in Midian. Right? And then comes back as the deliverer, he's called Moses. He had an encounter with God. And Moses comes, through the power of God, he delivers the people of Israel through the 10 plagues of Egypt and brings them to the Red Sea. God miraculously parts the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his chariots are coming, and God um, kills Pharaoh and his chariots in that Red Sea. And so God delivered them. And so now you'll see something, another pattern. God makes promises to them, but he also establishes a covenant with them. So that brings me to Exodus 19. These chosen, peop- uh, chosen nation. So we've had the chosen patriarch. We've had the chosen family. Now we have a chosen nation. And we are doing all these chosen people because we are trying to find the chosen offspring. The chosen offspring, which is the serpent crusher. So in Exodus 19, verse 4 to 6, this is what God said. We're also going to go to Exodus 24. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I destroyed them and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. In other words, God redeemed them. Now, if you obey Me fully and keep My covenant, God is about to establish a covenant with them, then out of all the nations of the earth you will be My treasured possession. That's why I call them the chosen nation. Although the whole earth is Mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Remember, God promised Abraham a nation. These are the words you have to speak to the Israelites. So. Is God talking to Moses, but he's now he's God, God talking to Israel through Moses. And in the same way, God is going to establish a covenant with these people that he's making these promises to through Moses. We call it the Mosaic covenant. And we find the ratifying of that covenant is what we eventually call the Old Covenant. We find that in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7 to 8. Now, don't forget, why am I doing all of this? Why are we going through all of this? We're trying to trace the story of the gospel. Why is it that the Bible is so big? Why are those books arranged in this way? That's what we're doing. And so in Exodus 24, 7 to 8, then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said because there are terms of agreement in that covenant. We will obey. Moses then took the blood Sprinkle it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And at that point, God establishes a covenant with the people of Israel. They are now that chosen nation. Now don't forget, they didn't have their own land. They were in the land of Egypt. So when God brought them out of the land of Egypt and took them to the wilderness, that wasn't how they were going to be a nation. They were a people now. They had the laws of God, but they needed land. And so they were journeying to what you call the promised land. So God gave them laws about how to be a special people. You see that in the book of Leviticus. So we've finished Exodus now, and now we've moved to Leviticus. laws about how they are God's holy and treasured people. And then the book of Numbers is largely about their journey through the wilderness. And then the book of Deuteronomy, the last of Moses' five books, is when they come to the cusp of the promised land after 40 years wandering. And then Moses gives them... Knew, uh, the laws. He gives them the laws that were given 40 years ago, he's reminding them because most of the people that came out of Egypt have died. That's why it's called Deuteronomy. Deuteronomous, right? Deuter is two, nomos is law. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. And so you have those first five books. They are, joining, they, they are now coming to the promised land, but Moses, because of certain things he had done, is not going to cross with them. The person that's going to take them into that promised land is Joshua. And they are inhabitants in that promised land. They are very sinful people, the Canaanite people. And so God uses Joshua, Moses' protege, to then bring the children of Israel into that promised land, settle them there until Joshua himself dies. That's what happens in the book of Joshua. Then you get into the book of Judges. Oh my God, the book of Judges. The book of Judges is probably is the Bible's R18 book. Mm? Not, not just for kids. You have to be very careful. It is the book of sin. Now notice what is happening. Even though Israel bears the promise, they are sinful. So they are now there in the land. They have God's law, but they discard the law. And really, everybody does as they like. That's what the book of Judges is about. They did as they like because there was no king. Though God will send them judges as deliverers because when God punishes them uh, for their sin through sending other nations to punish them, he will send them a deliverer, they will repent, they will go back into sin. They kept on descending into sin. Why? Because they did not have a king. That's the book of Judges. So they wanted a king. Now the book of Ruth comes before the book of Kings, and I'll get back to the book of Ruth. They wanted a king, and so they said, "I want, we want king, want a king." But they first chose a king that they liked, a man of nice, good-looking, started well, didn't end well. His name was Saul. Until God chose His own king. Now His king was in the lineage of Ruth. That's why the book of Ruth was there. The book of Ruth was happening. Uh, the, the events of the book of Ruth happened in the same time as the Judges happened. And so at the end of the day, when Ruth had a child at the end, the lineage of that child, eventually Ruth is the great-grandmother of the king that is chosen after God's heart. His name is David. So there's Abraham, through whom God is going to bless the nations. And he has, this, he has a nation that's going to born out of him. That is Israel, through his offspring. But yet, he said kings will come out. And there we're going to see a king after God's own heart. This is David. David defeats the the Philistines, he defeats Goliath, eventually becomes king after running away from Saul for such a long time. This is what 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are about, the latter part of uh, 1 Samuel and and all the parts of 2 Samuel is really the life of David and how he becomes king and establishes it. You You also have the same parallel in 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. And so David at some point says, I want to build a house for God, I fought all the enemies, I want to build a temple for God. And God then writes, sends a prophet, Nathan, to David and to say, I know you want to build a house for me, but that's not what's going to happen. I will build a house for you. By house, it means I will give you a lineage. Saul didn't have a, a kingly lineage. I will give you a lineage. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11b to 14a. It says, this is Nathan speaking to David. Yahweh, the Lord, declares to you that... Yahweh himself, Yahweh means that's the God of the Israelites, the true God. Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one that will build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne. Now, the immediate reference is to Solomon, who comes and builds a house, a temple for God. But notice what he then says after establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever? How is that going to happen? Except so, so um, Solomon lives forever. But we know Solomon dies. He doesn't live forever. He says, I will be his father and he will be my son. So God established, this is the basis of God establishing a covenant with David that he will have an everlasting kingdom through his offspring. And the only way that can happen is if David's offspring, uh, David's offspring, continue to rule in a kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever. One dies, the other one comes. One dies, the other one comes. One dies, the other one comes. And we see that in the book of Kings, and the book of one, uh, one or two Kings and one, uh, one or two Chronicles, right? But eventually, because of certain things, that lineage itself does not even end. That's one way. The lineage continues forever and ever. Another way is there is a son of David. Who eventually never dies and so is able to rule forever. Which do you think it is? Hold that thought for a while. So God then establishes David. Uh, uh, David dies at the end, uh, beginning of 1 Kings and what we then see 1 Kings and 2 Kings is just a succession of, uh, of, of kings and one crucial thing happens. Remember the people are still sinful. And so sometimes they're okay if they have a good leader, but many times they fall into idolatry. And so after Solomon builds God's temple, he does well for for a long time, but eventually gets full of himself. He he marries foreign wives and then they turn his heart away from God. And so what then happens, the people themselves follow the idolatry of Solomon. And so after a while, God is so angry that he says, Okay, Solomon, because of what I said to David, I won't fully judge you, but the judgment will come in your son's time. And so in Solomon's son's time, Rehoboam, who was the king over all Israel, eventually the the, the kingdom is divided. And so now to the north, you have 10 tribes. That is then called the kingdom of Israel. To the south, you have two tribes called the kingdom of Judah. Now both of them continue to sin. Most of the time, most of the kings of the north were terrible. Some of the kings of the south were okay; they were good. But most of them also were very bad. It was so bad that according to the book of Moses, what happens is a powerful empire comes and destroys the northern kingdom, whose capital is Samaria, in 722 BC. That is 722 years before Christ. They come, they scatter the people, most of the people there, they repopulate the land, they mix together, you know, they become a new race, which we eventually find in the New Testament called the Samaritans. That's in the the top, so they're a mixed breed. They don't really have that pure lineage again. Whereas the southern kingdom of Judah That one still holds David's kingship, David's kingship rule. So even though some of the kings are bad, it is still kings in David's line. But even they, when Assyria conquered the the top one, uh, the one in um, the the northern kingdom, in 722 BC, about 137 years later, 586 BC, also according to the law of Moses, that if you continue to continue continue to sin, I will remove you from the land. But Babylon, the empire, the powerful empire at that time, comes, destroys their temple, shifts all the people, shifts, uh, sh- uh, shifts all the uh, good people to their land. And it's at that time, in the, in the book of uh, uh, Babylon, we see a lot of things that happen in the book of Daniel, for instance, is when the Israelites are now exiles, all right? Because of their sin. Now, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Ezra and Nehemiah shows certain people when, when the, some of the Israelites come back because uh, after Babylon, then Persia is the next empire that conquers Babylon. There are Israelites there. Esther is for the people that are under the kingdom of, in, in Persia, but they don't return. Ezra and Nehemiah is for the people who um, return to build the, 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 the gates of the, of the city and the, fo- the foundation of the temple. And so that's really the Old Testament. And what you find there really is the sin of the people continues. The bearers of the promise, Abraham's people, also bear the disease sin. And so what is then going to happen to this offspring? Because now David doesn't have any king on the throne. And I want to say something about the prophets, the book of the prophets. I've just given you the first 17 books of the Old Testament. Then after that you have five wisdom books which are um, the Pro- uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, songs of Solomon, I'm not talking about those ones today. But then you have these prophets, these weirdos, weird guys that give weird messages, but yet listen, their messages are two things, big, just two things if I have to summarize. Judgment for sin and salvation. In other words, warnings about God's judgment and promises about God's salvation. One about God's judgment because the people continue to sin, but also God remembering the promises that He had made to Abraham, He was not going to leave it, Uh, He was not going to allow those promises not to come to pass. So let me give you, let's focus on just two prophets today Malachi and Isaiah. Malachi uh, Malachi and Isaiah, you see this judgment and salvation there, but there's something that it ties it to. It's always about God's coming. This judgment and salvation, you're going to see in the context of God coming. God is going to come in judgment. God is going to come in salvation. So Malachi 3 verse 2 and 5. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Verse 5. So I will come. To put you on trial i will be quick to testify against this, against sorcerers adulterers and perjurers against those who defraud laborers of their wages who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive foreigners among you of justice but do not fear me says the lord god almighty that was happening among god's people all of those things and that's why he says malachi is warning about god's judgment against sin. and yet there's another prophet isaiah who talks about god's coming god's appearing Again, but it's salvation. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who do what? Bring good news. The salvation is good news, gospel. Who proclaim peace? What are they proclaiming? They're proclaiming peace. This good news about peace and bring good tidings. Who proclaim what? Salvation. Who say to Zion, What is the what is the message? This good message. It is that your God reigns. That when God is made to be king, when God is acknowledged as king, that is the gospel. Your God reigns. Verse eight. When God returns, so you see God coming. When he returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Verse 10, from Isaiah 52, the Lord, Yahweh, will labor his holy arms in the sight of all nations. So you see, the promise of Abraham is reiterated: I will still bless the nations by bringing salvation to them. And all the ends of the earth, not just Judah, not just the Israelites, all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of God. Why? Because my promise to Abraham was that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now they thought that it was going to be the end of the rule of many of their uh, oppressors. But actually it was something deeper than that. Now how is God going to come? How is God going to come? We see judgment and salvation is God coming? Well, he has been coming through his word. The prophets is God coming. You've seen him come through his actions. Like God came in to Pharaoh, right? Through judgment that came by the hand of Moses. So is this how God is going to come? Through some intermediary, through some action, through his word? And that's where Malachi and Isaiah combine again for something, but they show you a little bit, a, a better picture that like God is going to come in a person. I will send my messenger, as uh, Malachi 3:1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. There will be one messenger that will prepare the way for God. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to His temple. The messenger of the covenant, two messengers, one messenger that will prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant. He is the one you desire. He will come, says the Lord Almighty. Wait, hang on, God is coming, but there's this messenger of the covenant that is coming. And before that messenger of the covenant comes, there's a messenger that will prepare the way for him. The messenger is preparing the way for the Lord, but is also preparing the way, he's also preparing the way for the messenger of the covenant. Hmm. Messenger of the covenant. But how about God coming? And remember, why is God coming? Isaiah 41 to 3. He says, Comfort, comfort my people, says God. How will these people be comforted? Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her sin has been paid for so the issue is not about overthrowing the oppressors it's about overthrowing the real oppressor's sin but the way sin is first going to be um, uh, overrun is by paying for sins verse 3 a voice of one calling in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for god a highway for god god is coming a way in the desert for the lord god is coming but about the messenger of the covenant? When God is coming, this thing, I'm not quite sure what it's saying. It's saying God is coming, but there's a messenger of the covenant that is coming, that is bringing peace. Now, I think Ezekiel will help us tie certain things together before we move to the New Testament. Finally, Ezekiel chapter 34, Verse 22 25, I'll just take some parts of it. I will save my flock. So when God is coming, He's coming with salvation. Verse 23, I will place over them one shepherd. This salvation is going to come by a shepherd king. Shepherd always means king. The Lord is my shepherd. And so many times when he's talking about shepherd, he's talking about the rule, the king of his people. Right? Who is he going to place? Who is that shepherd? My servant David. Uh, David is dead. No, he means Dave, someone in David's line. Verse 24. I, the Lord, will be their God. When this king is reigning, God will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them. So do you see? God is going to save people for the consequences of sin and from sin itself. He's going to come through a messenger that is going to bring a covenant. And is of the lineage of David. And through that messenger, it is God himself coming. And that brings me to redemption itself proper. Because now we now get to the heart of the gospel. Now I'm going to talk about really the heart of the gospel. And there are five things I want us to see in it. Don't forget all of this. Now, in the gospel, I want to talk in just the historical books of the gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But in Mark, the earliest gospel, Mark chapter 1, 1 to 3. You see that Isaiah chapter uh, 40 about the preparing the way of the Lord. And Malachi 3 about the messenger of the covenant. And the messenger that will come before Mark says this is going to be fulfilled now. Listen to what he says. Mark one, one to three, the beginning of the good news, the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah. Stop. You remember the Davidic, David, the, David, uh, uh, mess, the, the uh, God said, "I'll place one of David's descendants who will be shepherd, the shepherd king of my people." And yet he said, "The messenger of the covenant" and all of those things that led to the Jews understanding that God is going to come. In his salvation and deliverance to one they call the anointed servant. Or if you translate the Hebrew, it calls him the Messiah. Or if you translate the Greek, it calls him the Christ. So that's what they were expecting. And so here, the the beginning of the good news about Jesus, who is that Messiah that you have heard all about? The Son of God as it is written in Isaiah, he's going to quote both Isaiah and Malachi, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare my way, who will prepare the way, that is Malachi 3 verse 1, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord that make straight paths for him. This eventually was one prophet prophesied about who was John the Baptist. But notice, John the Baptist was preparing the way of who? For who? God. But when John the Baptist said, I'm meant to show the way for someone, He didn't point to God because no one can see God. He pointed to Jesus. But the prophecy had always been about God coming. What are you then saying? Are you saying that the coming of Yahweh, Israel's God, was Jesus' coming? Because now we're not talking about words, text. We're not talking about actions. We're talking about an entity came. And John helps us to understand that even further. John chapter 1 says this, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, so there's the Word and there's God, and then the Word was God. I don't want to go too much into this, but it shows us that Christianity, we believe in one God, but that that God has multiple persons, Father, the Word, and the Spirit, or Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so what he's saying, Is that that word, if you now go to John 1.14, it then says, that word became a human being. He he put on flesh, he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace. The first thing you must know about Jesus, and you cannot miss this in the gospel, as you have seen the story develop, that God is coming to bring salvation after the mess of all humanity through what? Through uh, the promise through Abraham to bless the world. It is coming through the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus first and foremost? He is the incarnate God. What do I mean by incarnate? It, talks, it points to incarnation. It is God putting on humanity, the infleshing of God. Incarnation. The infleshing of God. God became a human being. That is the first thing. God became a human being. Now, the next thing is, why did he become a human being? Because for Christians, that is what we celebrate at Christmas. And I'm not going to get into, was it really December 25th, paganism, and all of that? If you have time for that, that's your problem. But we are marking something about Jesus Christ coming in humanity. So the first thing, when we talk about Jesus Christ with Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, Jesus. That is God. This separates us already from other religions that accept Jesus, but don't accept that Jesus was God, come as a human being. Now, after he lived his life, his ministry, he had disciples, he, prof- he, 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 he did so many miracles to show that he was bringing the kingdom of God, the rule, the redemptive rule of God, to the redemptive rule of God to bring about a repairing of all that has gone wrong as a result of man's sin. After all of that, what happened? He says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. You see, there was an old covenant, and that old covenant ultimately was pointing to me. He said, the law the law pointed to me, or Moses spoke about me through the law, or he says, you said the scriptures for them, you think you have eternal life, they testify of me. So what was he going to, how was he going to achieve this? Luke chapter 22 verse 19 tells us, on, the, on, on just before the worst thing that I was, ever going to happen in the world was going to happen, which was the death of the most, the, the, the most innocent of all men, he explains. He says he was gathered with his disciples and they were having the Jewish Passover meal and he was about to transform that meal. And so he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. He was showing them that going forward they were going to symbolize something profound that was about to happen. What was it? That his body was going to be put on a cross, his blood was going to flow and he was going to die. Why? Because of sins. He was going to die on the cross because of sins. And so the second thing you cannot forget about the gospel is the crucifixion. Remember, not just crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus. First the incarnation, then two the crucifixion. He had to die for the rebellion of sins. That is why he was called Emmanuel. God with us. Why? Because he would save us from our sins. Why? Because he had to die for it. So whatever the definition of the gospel is, it has to have the incarnation and the crucifixion in it. Now here's the problem. Remember we said the antagonist. The protagonist is god now if the protagonist is god and jesus is god you can see how god in heaven and god here on earth is still the same protagonist jesus is the protagonist jesus is the main actor but when i was growing up we always had a saying it was passed on to us from those who are above us anytime you see a film especially action movies especially those terrible action movies of the 80s what was what was the saying it said actor never dies actor Never dies. No matter what, even if there are 50 people coming against the actor and they throw five bombs, <laughs> you know, five grenades against the actor, somehow, somehow, actor never dies. You can't have a movie where actor dies. But here we have our actor dying. And this leads us to the third part of the gospel and of, of Jesus Christ. He did not remain dead. He did not come back to life. But actually, he kept promising that he was going to give eternal life. And he went forth into that internal life through what we call the resurrection. After three days, Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead to show that his sacrifice on the cross was actually accepted by God. He did not remain dead. We don't have a dead savior. He died to save us from our sins but he rose again. This is part of what was already prophesied. I'm not going to go into Psalm 16 and and, and all the other parts of scripture that shows it in the Old Testament. But it was prophesied that he would not remain in the grave and he came back out. And so by the time you get to the end of the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 28, we have a Jesus who died in 27, but now in 28, he's talking to his disciples. And what does he say based on his resurrection? I now have all authority in heaven and earth. The authority of a king. But now over, not over Israel, but in the heavens and the earth, it has been given to me, and on account of that, what should you go and do? To his disciples he said, now go and make disciples of what? All nations. Ah, remember all nations? Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It was on account of the fact that Jesus the Messiah was God who became incarnate, died and rose again. He's now saying the message about me, when people believe in it, this is how the nations will be blessed. Not by money, not by health, but by this, that I died, I rose again. Go out. Go and fulfill Abraham's blessing. Now the fourth part, I've already hinted at it, but what happens is, Just before Jesus tells them to go, now we get into the book of Acts. Just before Jesus tells them to go, he's about to ascend in Acts chapter 1 verse 9, but he tells them, before you go, you need something else because I'm going. And God is always coming. If God has to be active in salvation, God has to be present. But God with us, Emmanuel, is going to heaven. So what's going to happen? Well, God is going to come again in the person of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He's saying, I'm going to continue this work of salvation now, but it is God that's going to do it, but God, the Holy Spirit, through you people, my church. But you cannot go out until that Holy Spirit comes. Now, we are, this is where we're now going to transit into that post-resolution part, the church. Okay. And so after he said that, in verse 9, it says, Acts 1 verse 9, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, you see, the, the importance of the Holy Spirit coming and Jesus' ascension doesn't really make so much sense until you go to Acts chapter 2 because the disciples now are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come based on the promise Jesus Christ has, 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 has given before they can go and now bless the nations of the earth. So they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, and it comes at a time called uh, the Feast of Pentecost, where a lot of the Jewish diaspora come, like when the diaspora of Nigerians come at the end of the year. The Jewish diaspora come from all the parts of the Roman world. Some of them don't speak Hebrew. They speak different languages, but they believe in the Jewish God. They come to celebrate the, 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 the Feast of Pentecost. And so, at that time, when the Holy Spirit descends, there are many people from all of the parts of the Roman world. And when the Holy Spirit descends, they hear the disciples speaking in other tongues to note that a certain phenomenon had happened, and they were speaking in tongues that they understood. And so, when Peter wants to explain what has happened, he refers to the prophet Joel that God had already promised in the Old Testament that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. But let me tell you the significance. For many of us, we think the significance is just so that we can be speaking in tongues and, and you know, energizing ourselves. But he said, no, this Pentecost thing is the birth of the church. And let me tie it to what, what it means about Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit coming on earth is a significance of something that has happened as Jesus Christ has ascended to heaven. Remember, we have talked about the incarnation. We've talked about the crucifixion. We've talked about the resurrection. That's three. Now, let's talk about the fourth part. Acts chapter 2, verse 30 to 36. But David, but he, that's David, we started talking about David, was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. So David's descendant has not yet gotten to David's throne. Many people think that throne is going to be in Jerusalem. But listen, see what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. That he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised This Jesus, the Messiah to life, and we are witnesses of this, so far we know about this, exalted to the right hand of God, he received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear, do you understand that? Jesus has now been exalted to the right hand of God. He has been given that throne. The throne of David that will last forever the, uh, is not in, on the earth. It is, in the, it is in heaven. That is the only way Jesus Christ can really have authority over the heaven and the earth. The president in Asso Rock has authority over Nigeria as long as he's on the earth. The queen has some authority, or well, ceremonial authority over the, the, British Isles and the, uh, the British Isles. The president of the United States over the United States, in Washington, D.C. They all have limited territory because their thrones are here on earth. But if somebody can say that I have all authority in heaven and the earth, it is because his throne is in heaven. And the proof that Jesus has been coronated as the King and the Lord of the universe, the proof here on earth is that he poured out his spirit. That is what this is saying. For David did not ascend to heaven. Yet, he said, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make enemies of your footstool for your feet. So in other words, and let me finish that. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. Lordship. King. Coronation. Remember in Isaiah chapter 52 what is the good news that they are bringing your god reigns your god the god man now reigns from heaven that is the good news paul says at one point says we preach jesus christ as lord and so many times many people want to say there's the gospel of salvation on the cross and there's the gospel of the kingdom um, uh, uh, jesus is king and we are restoring no don't don't don't, don't separate what, don't separate things that are together Jesus on the cross was his first throne and his resurrection he's gone to he's gone he has ascended to heaven and how is he going to spread his kingdom by the word of about him that he is the crucified Lord and is the Messiah incarnation crucifixion resurrection coronation he is the Lord that's for and so you now see that this kingdom starts to spread. The, the church now, now that the Holy Spirit has been poured out, they can spread this kingdom by speaking about the Messiah. Remember, I was meant to be in Jerusalem and all Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. That's why if you read in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, 8, 5, and 11, 20, you'll see that that is fulfilled. See, see this. In Acts two fourteen. Then Peter stood when the Holy Spirit came with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in where? Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judea. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. So, really, he he then preaches the gospel from Acts chapter 2 all the way to Acts chapter 7. The gospel is being preached, uh, right? the, The message about the Messiah is being preached in Jerusalem and Judea. By the time we get to Acts chapter 8, verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria. In fact, if you, to, if you read Acts 9, verse 31, there the church is called the church in Judea, and a uh, church in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And then in Acts 11, verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks, the Gentiles, They are neither Samaritans or Jews, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit has been poured out, God, the Triune God, is working out His salvation plan. The Father plans, this, the Son atones, and does all these things, and then the Spirit is now working through the body, the people of of God, so that at the end of the book of Acts, when the message was first proclaimed in the spiritual capital Jerusalem, in the book of Acts, at the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter twenty-eight, verse fourteen and thirty-one, the very end. The message is also proclaimed. The message about the Messiah and his kingdom is proclaimed in the, 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 the secular capital of the, of the ends of the earth. The capital of the ends of the earth where Rome. As, and so we came to Rome, verse 14. Verse 31. He, that is Paul, proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without inheritance. Are you seeing the development of the story? From how Adam fell, From how God created the world, human beings messed it up, sin started to grow, God judges, but God is also committed to bless. He chooses Abraham, the chosen patriarch. He chooses uh, Israel, the chosen people. He establishes covenants. And then he chooses David, the chosen uh, chosen, uh, king. And then he gets to Jesus, the chosen offspring. Jesus on the cross is the serpent crusher. He destroyed, he gave a fatal blow to the enemy there. And now, through his church, that he established a new covenant, not like the old covenant, this is the chosen people. And we are spreading the kingdom. That is what it means to bring the enemies under his footstool through the proclamation of that kingdom. Now, how does it all end? The final act. As this continues, I'll say more about the church and details of all of these things, how it affects us in the next series. We're just giving the story. Remember, there is a backstory. All of this is the backstory, history. And now we are still in that part, the church, 2000 years after, we're still in that part. But the story hasn't, been fin- it hasn't finished being told. Whilst in the context of COVID-19, there is, there is the salvation plan of God. It has been worked out. People are coming under that kingdom, but yet they're still evil. COVID-19 is one of the results of that fall. But yet, many people are also battering themselves. The relationships are still terrible in many places. This still continues, but the end always ends. It always ends well. What happens at the end? Well, first of all, all evil is destroyed. In Revelation 19, 11 and 13, 20 and 10, we see the final part of Jesus we must know. That he is what? He is judge. Verse 19, I saw... Uh, uh, Chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. Who is there? Who is the rider of the white horse? He is called faithful and true. I wonder who he is. With justice, he judges. Remember, God judged. He judges and wages war. Against who? He is dressed in a a robe. We still need to know more about him. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood. And his name is, guess what? The Word of God. No one else will tell you who that is. Jesus Christ is going to return. That's what this is saying. And when he comes, it's like he's fighting a war. And what does he do when he ends that war? He's bringing to, to he's going to punish and destroy all evil. In verse ten of chapter twenty, he says, "And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet. The beast is those, the one responsible for destruction and slaughter and murder in the whole world, and the false prophet is the one that is responsible for." The, for, 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 for deception is like, this is the, the, the false trinity. The devil, the beast, and the false prophet, they were thrown into the lake of fire. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But tragically also this, those are the demonic, demonic entities, the spiritual evil. But tragically also, there are many that will still reject Jesus Christ. And God says, as long as we continue to have people that don't worship in this world, it cannot give rise to a new world because we are part of the problem. And so what happens to people that never believe in god and those that continue to believe in god at the end if we read john chapter 5 verse 28 to 29 jesus said this do not be amazed at this for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice the voice of the son of god and come out those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned there will be a condemnation of all those who reject god because that is the greatest evil there is a resurrection of those who will be condemned. And so you see that Satan is being destroyed. All evil is going to be totally destroyed so that in the new thing God is trying to do, there will be no evil. A, those who believe in God, whether they have died, those, those who believe in God, in the true God, uh, through Christ, whether they have died or not, they will resurrect to never die again, just like Jesus Christ. This will happen when Jesus returns. But also, don't forget, it was our rebellion that brought the curse on the world. And God always solves this by coming. I remember we said the final part is home again. We've dealt with the tension, we've dealt with the resolution, but now here is home again. In Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and new earth. there will be a new creation. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. Verse 4, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away, the old order of things in the old earth that had sinned, no more of that will be there. And when you go to chapter uh, 22, verse 3, no longer will there be any curse in this new world. We will will have been resurrected to never die again and we'll be in this new world. We will dwell with God forever. Now we will see The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and seven through seven, they will see his face. God himself will dwell. Just as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, he will dwell now in a new garden, in a new world. This is the storyline. This is how the world will be blessed. It's home, tension, resolution, and then what? Home again. How? There are four, uh, creation, four redemption new creation and it is in this context that the gospel comes what makes all of this possible what makes the end possible it is because we read romans chapter 1 about jesus christ and the gospel paul says it is the gospel regarding his son romans chapter 1 verse 3 but he then tells you what about his son who as to his earthly life earthly life incarnation was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus Christ our Lord, coronation. And in verse, in verse 16 of chapter 2, he then says, Everything will be brought to an end. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So, with all of that said. In closing, what is the gospel? I said there are five elements. You've seen it through the story, but you've also seen it also brought in this Romans chapter 1 and 2. There are five things I said. There's incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, coronation, and return. So here's a definition we always use here in City Church. It's about Jesus Christ. And so what is the, God, the gospel? It is the good news that the incarnate and crucified Savior, Jesus the Messiah, is The risen or resurrected Lord and the impending judge of the world. He is the subject of the news. There is a story through which that news emerges, but it's always about Jesus. The incarnate and crucified Savior of the world, Jesus the Messiah, is the risen or resurrected Lord and the impending judge of the world. And that's newsworthy. It should be proclaimed. But the effect of that news, there's a subject of the news, but there are the objects, those upon whom the news comes to. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? How can I apprehend it? What does it mean for all the evil that is going on? What does it mean for poverty? What does it mean for the church? What does it mean for social interaction? What does it mean for all of these things? That is what we're going to look at in the coming weeks. But for now, we'll keep it at that.